All right, decisions. I want to talk about decisions today. Um, decisions are, are really important, aren't they? And depending upon the decisions that we make, uh, can say a lot about um, the kind of outcome our life will be. Some of us have made some really doozy decisions, right? Uh, I think I shared with you in a, a confession amongst my, all my friends uh, about a six months ago or maybe a year ago about uh, when I made a decision to go throw oranges on an expressway at cars and it hit a deputy sheriff's car and boy, I was in trouble. But anyway, um, but sometimes the decisions that we make just aren't good ones, but sometimes they can be great decisions. And I think it's important for us to know that um, there's a difference. Um, here's a couple of decisions that were like total devastation. Uh, back in, um, let me get through here, 1962, Decca Records thought that the guitar was on its way out, so they didn't uh, sign a contract with the Beatles. Think about that one. That was a bad decision. That was a billion dollar bad decision. Um, maybe you've made a decision to pull an all-nighter, you know, binge watching Marie Kondo on organizing stuff and then you know, missing work the next day. Um, here's another really bad decision. Uh, before Bill Gates met his, his wife, um, he actually was dating a, a young lady back in college, and she said to him, Bill, it's either me or the computer. And Bill made his choice, so bad decisions. Um, I was thinking about you know, my, myself, and I was thinking about decisions, and some good decisions I've made, and some not-so-good decisions. And, and uh, you know, like the, the Christmas that, that Patty wanted something from Tiffany's. And, uh, you know, I, I scrimped together uh, just enough money to buy something in a blue box. It just wasn't Tiffany blue. It was a Chia head. And um, that didn't go over very well. That, that was not a good decision. Uh, then there was that season many years ago that I wore skinny jeans. Now, see, a bad decision was a season. It wasn't just a one-shot deal. And if you want to think that through for a second, I, I get it. I mean, me and skinny jeans. Uh, but then there were some good decisions I made, like when I proposed to my wife to marry me, and that was probably one of the best decisions I've, I've ever made. So decisions can either do well for us or they can not do so well for us. Uh, we're in uh, week three of our Lenten series, and we're talking about um, what the world teaches and what Jesus teaches. The world teaches us about topics to make decisions, and Jesus teaches us about decisions that we're to make in God's way. So we've been wrestling and talking over these weeks in Lent about how what the world teaches and what um, Jesus teaches, about how those things come together and they collide, and how they make for us a force uh, to be reckoned with. You know, we talked the first week, a couple weeks ago, and, and um, we talked about loving our enemies. And uh, I don't know about you, but, but when I was preparing that message, I was um, really struggling with words that would be said to that day. And we talked about how, how we need to love the people who hate us. And we talked about what that meant, about people that hate us because we're, we're believers and people that hate us because of just who we are. And Jesus says we gotta throw all that out the window. And Jesus said that we, we have to love even our enemies. Pastor Pam last week talked to us about, you know, hierarchy and, and what it means to be first and noticed and, and all of those kind of things. And in, in our world teaches us that we're to like knock it out of the park, we're to climb the corporate ladder, we're to be noticed and to be number one in everything that we do. But Jesus said that the real mark of a disciple is not being first, but being last. In fact, he said it's not being the master, it's actually all about being the slave. So these decisions of things that we see. And, and this week, it's not gonna be any different. We're gonna, I'm gonna really push us on a story that, that's really important, a story that, that will take us to the, to the next place in our understanding. It's a story of a person that I think whose decision is very perplexing. In fact, I don't get why this person makes the decision that they do. 
But because it's in Scripture and because it appears there, it's important for us to know what it is. It's important for us to know that, that this man had everything. In fact, in worldly standards, this man would have everything you can think of. He had the big house. He had the big bank bank account. He had the nice car. Uh, he had, you know, all the things, expensive things that one could think about. But the one thing that he was missing, the one thing that he could not purchase, the one thing that he did not own was the secret to eternal life. And this man is wrestling with this decision. What do I need to do to have eternal life? So let me take us into uh, Mark's gospel today. I'm going to take us to Mark chapter 10, and we're going to look at verses 17, uh, probably to about 24 or 25. So as uh, Jesus went out into the street, a man came running up and greeted him with great reverence. So this man recognizes Jesus, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus said, why are you calling me good? No one is good, only God. But you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, honor your father and mother. And the man said, teacher, I have from my youth, I've kept them all. And Jesus looked him hard in the eye and he loved him. And he said, there's one thing left, go sell what you own and give it to the poor. And all your wealth will then be heavenly wealth and then come follow me. The man's face clouded over. This was the last thing that he expected to hear and he walked off with a heavy heart. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. And looking at his disciples, Jesus said, do you have any idea how difficult it is for people who have it all to enter God's kingdom? And the disciples couldn't believe what they were hearing, but Jesus kept on. You can't imagine how difficult. I'd say it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for the rich to get into God's kingdom. And that set the disciples back on their heels. And then, who has any chance at all, they asked. And Jesus was blunt. No chance at all if you think that you can pull it off by yourself, but every chance in the world if you let God do it. If you let God do it. So this man is, is asking this very important question, and he's trying to find his way, or by his way, into heaven. Now, depending upon uh, which gospel reader that you, re which gospel writer you read this story, it actually appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, you're going to find out some different descriptors. Mark says that he's rich, Matthew says that he's young, and Luke describes him as a ruler. But neither of them describe him as all three, and that's kind of where we come up with the understanding that this story is about someone called the rich young ruler. And it shows that, that uh, up in all three Gospels, which tells us that this story is extremely important. It's important and it's true, and it's being reiterated in such great capacity that we need to take charge of what it is. And because of this man, we have kind of come face to face with the kind of teaching from Jesus that some of us, if not many of us, never want to hear. And that is, go sell your possessions, give it to the poor, give away everything that you have, and follow me. And for most of us, it rubs us the wrong way. For most of us, we can't even get to that place where we can even fathom giving away everything that we have to follow the poor. But are we understanding what Jesus is really saying? Are we kind of taking it in face value? Or is Jesus kind of getting to the quick of something even more important in the life of this particular man? 
Mark doesn't say right off that the man is rich, but, but later on in the story we, we learn that. Um, we, we learn that he's rich not because of his good manners. We don't, we don't learn that he's rich because he runs up and he kneels at Jesus' feet or that he addresses Jesus with the topic as, as teacher. But, but we, we understand that he's rich because he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this should really put us into suspect when we think about this question, because the entire community of Israel is built upon community, it's built upon people, and yet this one man separates himself from the whole pack, and he doesn't ask the question, what can we do? He asks, what can I do? In other words, how can I pay for it? How can I buy it? I've acquired all these other riches, all these other things here on earth. This is the one thing that has gone away from me. This is the kind of man who doesn't worry about if his bills are paid. He doesn't worry about paying his mortgage. He doesn't worry about the car payment or the insurance payment. He doesn't have to ask the questions, do I need a higher paying job just to survive? He doesn't have to ask the question, can I feed my family? This man is free from all of these concerns. He doesn't have to spend his days trying to make ends meet in life. He's free to pursue the goodness of life because of the treasures that he has amassed. But Jesus is not impressed. Jesus sees the man kneeling down before him, and he sees someone who's clearly above average. He sees someone who works hard. He sees someone who works hard to stay in the, in the bracket that he's in, so to speak. Someone who wants to achieve as much in heaven as he has here and acquired on earth. This is what the person is that Jesus sees. And Jesus begins to try and lead this man. And now this guy, when, when he asks Jesus this question, when he comes into the presence of Jesus, and, and, and we know that he recognizes something in Jesus that says that he's the powerful Messiah because he calls him good teacher, knowing that God is the only one that a good-fearing Jew would call good. But Jesus looks at this man. And this man's gotta be thinking, you know, maybe I've gotta, you know, give up a little bit of money to buy shoes for all the kids in Palestine, but, but I can go and store all of my clothes and I can go put, you know, drapes over my, my furniture in my house and I can just shut it all down and lock the key and, and, and come back to it at a later time because I can go follow Jesus. But Jesus looks at this man and he understands that there's no way right now that he's ready to cooperate. Jesus says, do not do these things, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, but honor your father and your mother. And the man says, teacher, I've done all of those things. I've done it all, even since I was a little boy. I've done all that. Can I have eternal life now? And it's funny how sometimes we think about the way to draw closer to God is not by doing certain things. It's as if that if I am only doing good, then I can be in the presence of God. But Jesus looked at him, the scripture says, looked at him hard, looked him in the eye, but he loved him. And as I think about how Jesus must have looked at this man, I kind of think about here's Peter standing there observing all of this that's going on and how Peter will probably recognize that same look that Jesus is looking at this rich young ruler and love him, that the time is coming soon that Peter will see that same look when Peter denies knowing Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and he loves him. You see, Jesus looked at him hard in the eye 
He sees that he's malleable. He sees that he, sees that he is moldable. He sees that this is a young man who, who is seeing the greater sense. And when Jesus begins to communicate back, the man is convinced, I have found somebody finally who can show me the way to eternal life, who can teach me and show me how to get the one thing that has evaded me all of my life. But Jesus looks deeper into the man. And he looks into his heart, not just at superficially at him, but into his heart. And as he looks into his heart, he looks into his heart like a doctor making a diagnosis. He looks inside of him. He sees what the matter is. Jesus begins to sense what the problem is and what's the right medicine to heal this young man. And then he, he chooses his healing words very carefully. He says to the man, you lack one thing. There's, you might have it all, but you lack one thing. And the man is like, finally, somebody is ready to tell me what it is that I need to do or what I need to pay for or, or what role I need to acquire in order to have that one thing. Whatever the cost, he's convinced he'll pay for it. Whatever the shortcoming may be. But he doesn't understand that, that Jesus isn't talking about addition. He's talking about subtraction. That instead of acquiring, that this man needs to somehow subtract and to get rid of, of the things that are clouding his judgment, the things that are stopping him from connecting with God. Jesus says, go and sell whatever you own and give it to the poor. All your wealth will then be heavenly wealth and follow me. Folks, this is a, this is a rich prescription for a very rich man. And Jesus, it's designed to, to melt this lump that is, that is in his throat, this knot that's in his stomach. It's, it's, it's designed to, to remove the, the things, the baggage that this man is carrying that, that is causing this huge hump on his back that he can't pass through the lintel into the kingdom's home. It's meant to remove all these things. Jesus is not giving the man an invitation to become greater or to acquire more. In fact, he's saying quite the opposite. He's giving him the solution to become smaller. And by being smaller, more agile, and by choosing, instead of his accounts on earth, seeing the benefits of what heaven will be. It's a dare for this rich man to become a new creation. It's a dare for this rich man to no longer be known in the community as how he is known, as wealthy and as powerful and as uh, cultured and responsible and educated and committed and obedient, but instead to trade all that in, to trade all that in into a radically new world of teaching that Jesus says, if you do this one thing, you'll be free. Anybody in the room like to go to the dentist? Devin, I know you do. You work with one, right? <clears throat> now, I love De Devin, so, so I, and, I, and I love my dentist. But I got to tell you, what I don't like is the dental chair. You ever been in a dental chair? Yeah? I mean, you sit down in the chair, and they bring out that, that metal object that has that spike on the end. I call it a harpoon. Yeah. <laughs> And they begin to start scraping and poking and prodding in your mouth, right? And, and all of a sudden, they start like really wrenching down on your teeth. And I know they're just hoping something breaks so there's a crown in it for them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then, then when you're in the dentist chair, 
Um, you know, they, they shoot you up with Novocaine and because they, you know, they don't want to hit a nerve or anything like that. And then they start, you know, scraping and poking and prodding. Does this hurt? Ah, does this hurt? Ah, you know? And then what they do is they got their whole hands in your mouth and your mouth is stuffed with like 50 pounds of cotton and gauze. And then they want to have a conversation. Well, so what'd you do this weekend? <laughs> you know, well, did you, did, you, did you take the convertible out? <laughs> I mean, you know, but the thing about it is, is that, that, that a dentist is, is, is probing around trying to find the problem. That's why you go to the dentist, right? You got a problem. If you just go to the dentist because you like to, then we can do some counseling or something about that. But see, Jesus is like the dentist to this rich young ruler. He's poking and prodding. He's finding what hurts. He's touching the nerve. And he's getting to that point where, where this man will understand what the problems are. And, and whereas this man has the audacity to say to Jesus, I've kept all of these commands since I was a young boy. I've never missed any of them. And Jesus looks right at him and says, but oh, you're not being truthful. You're not keeping the first commandment. And that commandment is have no other what? Gods before me, before God. And he looks at him and he says, but, but you're not even keeping the first commandment. And the, and the rich young ruler is looking at him and, and Jesus says, this proves that money owns you. That you don't own it, it owns you. That your possessions own you, your stuff owns you. And that's where the sharp dental probe begins to hit the nerve in the heart of this young man. You see, as Christians, we, we, we wrestle with this story. We, there's a part of us that, that we want to at least um, look at it in two ways. The first way we want to look at the story is, is as if it's at, that it's not about money. Oh, it's not about money. It's, it's more about character. It's not about money. And the second way we looked at this is we say, oh, no, it's all about money. And we wrestle with these things. And what we find out is, is that Jesus recognizes that money is like nuclear power that it is a, an energy that needs to be harnessed. It's an energy that needs to be used appropriately. It's an energy that when it's put in the right direction as a resource, it, it powers up many things that God can use and tap into. But the challenge is, is not many of us know how to handle money. A lot of us, we, we earn it, and, and for many of us, we're, we're kind of down at the end of every, of every paycheck going like, do I have enough to pay the rent this month? And we haven't even thought about saving for our future, and we hope to sugar that, uh, you know, Social Security's gonna be there. We don't know how to handle it. But Jesus said it's important that we know. Every now and then, someone does choose to manage it well. And what Jesus is trying to say to this man is if you take what you have, and instead of letting it be your God, and you do what I'm telling you to do, you can be free. It's a story that makes us look internally. You see, but it's not all about money, this story, because if it was, then we could all buy our way to heaven, right? We could just be like this man. What's it gonna cost? I'll pay it, let me get there. It's, it's eternal life. So what we see through this is Jesus is saying is not saying that if you have wealth or if you have money, you're a bad person. He's not saying that. But the moment we start worshiping and collecting and adoring and coveting and believing that it's our God and looking at our accounts and everything that we have and we're just kind of holding on to it and we're not doing anything for the purpose of God, that's the problem. 
that he sees. You see, in the kingdom of God, it's not for sale. The poor can't buy it with their poverty. The rich can't buy it with their money. It's what God chooses to do. And the kingdom of God is, is that which God gives away. And God chooses, God coalesces his way of saying that this is what I want you to have. The, the, the trick is that we have to be ready to receive the gift. Others, uh, are, uh, we can't be tied right down. We have to be ready to respond. We can't be so inundated with all of our things that we miss the opportunity. We can't follow if we don't go free. So Jesus told the man, sell everything. Give it to the poor. And Mark says that, that at that moment, the man's face clouded over. It was the last thing he expected to hear. And he walked off with a heavy heart because he was holding on tight to a lot of things. And he wasn't about to let it go. The rich young ruler walked away sorrowful. And here's the ironic thing that I think really makes this story stand out when it comes down to decisions. This is the only person in the Gospel of Mark who comes into the presence of the Lord himself and walks away sorrowful. This is the only person in, in the Scripture of Mark that, that comes into the presence of Jesus and does not walk away with any hope. This is the only person, and the reason this happens is because he coveted his wealth more than he feared his poverty, and because he feared poverty, he would not allow himself to be afraid of not having eternal life. The Apostle Paul talks to us very plainly. And Paul was a man, if we were to look at Paul's life, Paul was probably a lot like this rich young ruler. Paul was a man of authority. Paul was a man of wealth. Paul was a man of power. Paul was a man of prestige. Paul was a man of notoriety. Paul was a man of education. Paul was on parallel with this same rich young ruler. And we could say that those lives moved in that same direction. The difference was is that the apostle Paul saw the greater truth. Paul knew life was not merely contained here on earth. Paul knew that his life was not solely measured by his earthly wealth. Paul understood that life was about eternity with God. And therefore, that which was accomplished here in the name of God would bring the kingdom here sooner and eternity within reach. He writes to the church in Philippi as he conveys to them the reality that we're faced with. He, he writes to them about these choices that, that we're confronted with, that every day you and I have decisions to make. And Paul says that, that we have to decide what and whom will we follow? What is, what is it that we will gravitate toward? What is our God and what is not? Paul says we have to choose. Listen to what he writes. He says, these things were my assets. So he's talking about all the things that he had of earth, so all of his earthly wealth. These things were my assets, but I wrote them off as a loss for the sake of Christ. But even beyond that, I consider everything a loss in comparison with the superior value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So Paul says that, that value and that worth does not come in our stored treasures here, but it comes in our relationship with Christ, that that is where wealth is measured, is our relationship with Christ. He says, I've lost everything for Christ, but what I lost I think of as sewer trash, so that I may gain Christ and, he and, and be found in him. In Christ, I have a righteousness that is not my own and that does not come from the law, but rather from the faithfulness of Christ. It's the righteousness of God that's based on faith. 
The righteousness that I have comes from knowing Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the participation in his sufferings. Do you see where Paul is saying that, that wealth and understanding and peace and freedom and all that comes through the understanding of the resurrection and participating in that and also participating in the sufferings of Christ. And he knows that, that Christ is not found, the relationship with Christ is not found in worldly wealth. It's in relationship. And he says, it includes being conformed to his death so that I may perhaps reach the goal of the resurrection of the dead. Now listen to this next part, because imagine for a second where Jesus is talking about the rich young ruler, the ruler is assessing all of his wealth of the past up to that point. He's asking about the future. Jesus tells him how the future will come, but yet the man keeps looking back in his past. He won't let go of his God. Paul says, it's not that I have already reached this goal, or I've already been perfected, but I pursue it so that I may grab hold of it because Christ grabbed hold of me for just this purpose. Now listen here. Brothers and sisters, I myself don't think I've reached it, but I do this one thing. Here it is. I forget about the things behind me, and I reach out for the things where? Ahead of me. The goal I pursue is the prize of God's upward call in Christ Jesus. So Paul says the goal isn't here. The goal is what life will be in eternity because life here on earth is probably like this. Eternity, it's all of that. So to get our heads around this, it's really important. And that's why it collides. Because like you, what goes on in my mind is, what about the kids? What about the mortgage? What about our aging parents? What about the doctor's bills? What about the economy? What about the future? Listen, I know, I ask the same questions. It's the same for me. Because sometimes it's harder to thread a camel than it is to follow Jesus. Sometimes it's easier, I should say, to thread a camel than it is to follow Jesus. But the truth be known is, the only way we can be saved is to be free. Jesus said we can't do it on our own. But he says, with God, all things are what? Possible. The rich young ruler, Jesus, they collide. 